My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to Episode 7 of Season 5 of the 21st Century Creative. The early 21st century has seen the rise of the self-published author, who has opted to sidestep traditional publishing and achieve creative and commercial success on their own terms. Another familiar figure in the 21st century creative landscape is the digital nomad a creative entrepreneur who travels while running an online business, working from the road via laptop and phone, and combining work and travel in their pursuit of freedom. Today's guest embodies both of these trends with a unique creative twist. Her name is Emily Kimmelman, and she's a thriller author who has travelled the world in a boat and crisscrossed the USA in an Airstream trailer while writing and publishing her books and selling hundreds of thousands of copies in the process. Emily's adventurous spirit shines through in her writing as well as in her approach to travel and entrepreneurship, and she's given us a really inspiring interview about her journey as a writer and a creative entrepreneur. To me, this conversation is a real breath of fresh air, especially at a time like now when Travel is a distant memory for most of us. I should mention that, like most interviews this season, we recorded this one pre-COVID, but it's not hard to join the dots and see how the principles Emily used to create a business she could run from the road, or even the high seas, can help us all in an age of remote working. Before we get to that conversation with Emily, I'd like to introduce you to a source of new ideas that is literally under your nose. Today, I want to talk about the art of overhearing yourself. If you think about overhearing something, you probably think of listening to someone else's conversation, whether deliberately or accidentally, and picking up a tidbit of information that you would never otherwise have been privy to. It might be funny, or shocking, or useful. Or, as in the case of so many loud phone calls in public places, completely boring, pointless, or annoying. But have you ever thought about overhearing yourself? Because in my experience, this is a great and often overlooked source of new ideas. Most of my blog posts, articles, book chapters, and podcasts have come from things I find myself saying over and over to coaching clients and realizing this means they're useful, so I should write them down. Stop trying to be confident. Start being enthusiastic. If it won't fit on a post-it, it won't fit in your day. Forget the career ladder. Start creating assets. 
Your creativity is your security. Be thankful for your inner critic. The bigger the dream, the bigger the fear. And so on. I've realized that as long as I'm coaching and helping clients deal with the challenges that come their way, then new ideas will keep emerging from the conversations we have. And the best ones are the ones I keep repeating, because they're the ones that apply to the most people. I just need to pay attention and overhear myself saying something useful. Sometimes I even get ideas for poems by overhearing myself. I catch myself repeating the same anecdote to more than one friend and realise there's something important or memorable about that experience for me. And maybe it could be a poem. Like the first time I went to Japan and tried to order brandies in Japanese for myself and two friends at a cafe in Hiroshima. The waitress seemed very surprised, but I insisted we wanted three. So she shrugged her shoulders and came back with three triple brandies. Or the time I was staying in a Buddhist monastery and we all got up before sunrise to meditate. As I sat there cross-legged in the dark, I heard somebody snoring really loudly. And I couldn't believe that one of these dedicated Buddhist monks had fallen asleep in the middle of meditation, or that no one was giving him a nudge to wake him up. And it was only when the sun came up that I could see the monastery cat curled up fast asleep next to the abbot. Or another time I was in Japan, watching a documentary on extreme weather conditions with lots of footage of floods and buildings collapsing and cars being swept away. And I wondered why tomorrow's date kept appearing in the corner of the screen. And I suddenly realised it wasn't a documentary, it was the weather forecast. All of these anecdotes turned out to be poems trying to catch my attention. Eventually, I took the hint and wrote them down. So next time you catch yourself offering the same piece of advice or telling the same story over and over again, start listening in, as if you were listening to a stranger's conversation, and ask yourself, is there something here I can put to good use? If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative... You may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time, how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. In case you can't quite believe your ears, 
go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign-up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. Emily Kimmelman is an author and traveller who has written her books from all over the world, including the beaches of India, the jungles of Costa Rica, and the islands of the Caribbean. She spent many years working while travelling, firstly sailing the seas in a boat, and later crisscrossing the United States in an Airstream trailer. In childhood, she lived in Soviet Moscow, where her father was a correspondent for the Philadelphia Inquirer. While living under communist rule, she says the KGB sprinkled her entire family with spy dust, a radioactive compound that left a glowing trail so that they could track them wherever they went, which, she says, might explain where some of her ideas for spy thrillers come from. There are currently 13 titles in Emily's Sydney Rye series, and her other books include a series of romantic thrillers co-authored with Toby Neal. With hundreds of thousands of books sold, Emily has an army of readers eager for each new release. I met Emily in 2016 when she asked me to coach her, and I had the privilege of working with her for two years while she was travelling in her Airstream and transforming her business from working as a solo author to expanding her team so she could delegate a lot of the business tasks and focus more on her writing. In our time together, I was really impressed by Emily's independent-mindedness, her enthusiasm, and her dedication to carving out the life she wanted for herself and her family. So I asked her to come on the show so you could hear her remarkable story and experience her creative and enterprising attitude for yourself. In this conversation, she talks about how she got started as a writer in spite of not being able to read until the age of 10 due to dyslexia, and how she went on to find success as one of the early writers to self-publish via Amazon's Kindle. She also tells the story of her journey as an entrepreneur, from running a glass-blowing business through to applying her entrepreneurial skills to the business of authorship. If you like to travel and you're pining for distant lands with the current travel restrictions, you'll also enjoy Emily's stories of balancing work, family and travel by air, sea and land. Finally, and in my view most importantly, she talks about the mental game of authorship and creative entrepreneurship, which is the part that makes the biggest difference over time. If you're the kind of creator who values quality of life as much as money or fame, and you want to succeed on your own terms, you'll find plenty of inspiration in this conversation with author Emily Kimmelman about the adventure of writing. Emily, 
how did you get started as a writer? Well, I think it's uh, not unusual. I think most writers, what happens is that you read a book that's so terrible, you figure you could do better. <laughs> and that's what happened for me. Um, I was uh, living in New York at the time. I was going to college and I'd, I'd taken a few years off. So I was an older student and I was on the subway and I was reading a mystery I'd picked up at the local Barnes and Noble in the sales rack. And it was um, a cat mystery. And it turned out the answer to the mysteries was aliens did it. And there'd been no hints throughout the book that aliens were involved. And I closed the book and I remember looking around the subway and thinking, well, that was horrible. I could do better than that. Mm. Um, and at the time I was, I, I was taking some writing courses and, um, so I'd been writing some stuff and I had, uh, my brother and uh, my best friend had been reading it and saying how great it was and that I should be doing more writing. And so it had already, the seed had been planted, um, and then I loved mystery so much and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And basically what I wanted to do was just read books all day. And so writing them seemed mm -hmm. like the way to get paid for that um, because I didn't think anyone would pay me just to read them. I had no interest in writing reviews or critiques. Right. So yeah. Yeah. I figured this was, this was the, the chance I had that I'd be able to be kind of in that world all the time. Um, and once I read that book, I figured I could do it. Um, and, and I was right. Oh, I love I love that because usually it's the writer says, oh, "I read this book; it was so inspiring." Yeah, I really thought, yeah. <laughs> well, I'd say inspiring. <laughs> inspiring books often just scare me. There's definitely some books I've read, and, and it makes it hard to write for days because oh, I'll never I'll never do anything that good. What's the point anymore? So mm. I, I prefer the bad books. <laughs> yeah, they always make you feel good, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and why mysteries? You know, that was the first genre I got into. I, I was severely dyslexic as a kid and actually couldn't read until I was 11. And I basically went from not being able to read at all and kind of a flick switched in my brain and suddenly I could read at college level. So one of the first books I ever read to myself was an Agatha Christie book. Um, and I just, just, tore through them. Um, my parents are both big readers. They love mysteries. So their bookshelves were filled with the genre. And so I, I went through P.D. James and kind of all of the classics um, when I basically from as soon as I could read, that's what I started reading. Um, and it's what I'd always enjoyed. Um, and I think there's, you know, I so in college, I ended up, I, I went to Gallatin at NYU, which is a college where you can create your own major and so I actually have a degree in the history of homicide, um, forensic science, and detective fiction. So Whoa. what is the, the kind of interplay between our fears of death and, and these horrible, violent things that could happen to us and the fiction that we all want to read, which somehow comforts us um, you know, because there's justice on the page, is always more perfect than justice in reality is going to be. Um, and so I think that the play between those two has always fascinated me, um, and like so many other people. Um, and so that's, that's really what I wanted to explore in my work. And for those of us who are new to your fiction, could you, obviously without too many spoilers, mm -hmm. just give us an introduction to the kind of world you write about, the kind of characters that you like to, to put center stage? Sure. So my main series, which is the Sydney Rye series, um, Sydney, like the old Jewish man, Rye, like the whiskey, um, is about a, a young woman who 
ends up getting wrapped up in a mystery. She's, you know, has no skills or, or reasons to do this, but of course there's, they're given to her throughout the course of the book. And she has a giant dog, um, which when, who's based on the dog I had when I started writing this book, um, a giant mutt who, my giant mutt Nova was not a hero. Um, her dog is very much a hero. Um, but in any case, uh, you know, it's kind of the idea of a unskilled female character who kind of just through grit and determination um, is able to take on the the powerful forces against her, usually a male powerful force, um, and, you know, best them in a, a violent and a brilliant way. And so that's my Sydney Rye series. And that basically is the setup for most of my books is there's a uh, young female character who is being oppressed by, should we call it the patriarchy? I mean, it's, it's a, it's a character who's well. standing in that um, <laughs> and, and she bests them. So, you know, it's certainly my own fantasies of how I would like the world to work. Um, and obviously lots of other people's, that's why people read the book. Um, but one, uh, one of the, a paper I wrote in college was about James Bond and um, the way that the James Bond stories, uh, movies specifically, have followed kind of foreign policy and how we take, you know, those movies take, you know, these big frightening things that are so complicated and far reaching and put them into one bad guy on an island who we can just kind of parachute in and take him out and we've solved you know, the mm-hmm. pressing issue of the day. And so basically I'm trying to do that with patriarchy. <laughs> and, and what kind of, what do you hear from readers about what they value in your work? I, you know, I get, I get a lot of um, emails from women, especially older women. And my readers do seem to be older. And I think that's because um, who has time to read books? It's often retired people. Um, and a mm-hmm. lot of them are women who say, God, I feel so brave when I read these books and so powerful. And so I kind of give them that taste, um, I think, that every person would want to kind of be able to take on these incredibly powerful forces that you don't have control over um, and to take control of them and to best them. And so, you know, older female readers definitely respond to that. And then I have male readers who are like, it's so awesome. She kicks such ass. It's so much fun. Um, So I think it's, you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing because obviously a lot of men don't like the way things are set up either. Um, and so they're happy to see it be taken down by this character who, you know, is funny and um, insightful and kind of, you know, fun to be with while also kicking ass. And when you started out, what were your ambitions for the writing? Did you see it as a, as a business, as a professional or was it, yes. did that come later? No, that, that definitely was, because like I said, I was an older student. So I was in my early twenties and I was, I was looking for a profession. Um, and I was actually, I was working as a dog walker and I knew that wasn't going to be the profession long-term, although I did enjoy it. Um, and so the Sydney Ryan, the first book is a dog walker. And that's kind of where I got the idea because it's, you know, I worked for an agency. And so I was in these people's houses that they'd never seen me. They wouldn't recognize me on the street. And yet I knew their dog really well. I was in their apartment every day. And that to me just seemed like a really kind of cool setup. Um, And so I started playing with that idea and I knew from the beginning I wanted to do a series because that's what I like to read. Um, And I think most writers are writing books in in many ways from themselves. I mean, this is all the books I write are the books that I want to read. And so that's, I knew I wanted to do a series. 
I knew I wanted this to be my life's work. One of the things I love about writing is that you're never going to master it. You know, it's not like one day I'm going to be like, well, I did that. Perfect. Perfect novel. Moving on. You know, that's, that's just never going to happen. And, you know, and PD James wrote in your nineties. I mean, it's the kind of thing where I'm, I knew I wanted um, a work that would challenge me and that I could do forever um, and that I would never be able to master. And so writing was kind of a, the perfect choice for me. Um, and, and I didn't expect, obviously, to be making a living immediately. I had expectations of being a dog walker, and I, I was, and I bartended for years. And so um, the amount that actually I've been able to make is surprising to me, um, and it's because of self-publishing. Um, you know, when I started writing, self-publishing didn't exist. The Kindle didn't exist in 2005 when I started working on my first book. Um, I think it came out in 2007 and, um, or 2008, maybe I I can't remember, but you know, e-publishing wasn't a thing and self-publishing was, you know, was a vanity thing. It wasn't, it wasn't cool and it wasn't going to make you money. Um, so I thought, and I had an agent, um, I thought I would find a publisher and, you know, get a little money and you know, just keep bartending for at least another decade or two. <laughs> um, so I was pleasantly surprised. So I'd like to come back to the whole self-publishing and the, mm-hmm. the business side in a minute, but I'm really intrigued by this, what you said, that you you wanted something that, you know, could be your life's work. Mm-hmm. And I think this is often, it's an overlooked element of success is that sense of of dedication to something over the long haul. I mean, you know, in most creative professions, overnight success is the exception rather than the rule. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what was it that let you know, yeah, this this is something I could I could see myself doing in my 80s? Well, I think because I love to read so much and learning to read was such a hard fought process for me. Um, I always had such huge admiration for stories and for writers because um, cause I couldn't do it for so long. <laughs> um, and I think that there was something, you know, I say now that, that being that dyslexic and having to fight so hard at such a young age to overcome it was so good for me because it taught me that basically, you know, if you just keep working at it from different angles, you're going to get it. Um, you know, if it's something within my control, so can I read, can I write the book? You know, this is, these are all things that are um, completely because of me, um, you know, nothing, yeah. nothing else is going to stop me, um, except for my own, you know, basically stop trying. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when I, I think overcoming dyslexia gave me that, um, thirst for challenge. And so, because it was so satisfying when I did it, it felt so good. And I'd always admired writers because it was so hard for me. And then, you know, the big stumbling block for me, really deciding I wanted to become a writer, the reason I shied away from it for so long is because I thought, well, I couldn't read for so long. How could I write? And once I kind of got over that, I was like, oh, of course, this is what I want to do. This is all I want to do. Um, and, you know, you know, in terms of the, I knew I wanted something that would keep me kind of interested forever. I knew I wanted to be a creative person. I thought I was wanted to be a visual artist, but it it didn't, it, it, I wasn't that good at it. So it wasn't that fun. <laughs> I, I didn't have the talent. Um, you know, my, my husband's a glass blower, mm-hmm. um, and my brother's a graphic designer and a lot of my friends are visual artists and I really admire that. Um, 
But I think in order to be a successful visual artist, you do have to have some spark of talent that then makes it exciting and fun and a challenge that's worth pursuing. I didn't have that. Um, but I, but, and it was a lot of my visual artist friends who were like, you should be writing. You're a good writer. <laughs> like, um, but so I, I knew I wanted to be creative. I just, that's what I was drawn to. Um, and I think that, I don't know, it's an interesting question. How did I know I wanted kind of a life's work? I think that just always was in my head. That's something I wanted. And books are just so limitless. Stories are so limitless yeah. that, you know, how could you ever run out of work? Yeah, that's a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Okay, so talking of kindling that spark of talent, mm-hmm. at what point did you become aware of the self-publishing world, that it was starting to, to change away from the old vanity? Well, so I, was, I bought a Kindle um, because I've always been a big traveler and the amount of books I had to take me what, with me when I traveled was a joke. Um, my husband on our first big trip together, we went to Thailand for a month and most of my luggage was paperbacks and he yeah, couldn't, he yeah, couldn't believe yeah. <laughs> how much he was hauling around. Um, you know, and I was, le- I would leave the paperbacks as we went. So the baggage did get lighter, but he just couldn't believe that I, I insisted I needed this many books with me because, you know, I didn't know what I'd want to read. And, you know, I just, I had so many reasons why I needed all these books. And so it's, I bought one of the first Kindles. So I thought, this is the answer to all of my mm. reading problems. Now I can just have these. I don't have to, you know, carry a suitcase for my books when I'm on a month long trip. Um, and then, you know, s- authors were starting to come out and talk about it. And I was reading that I was reading up on publishing. I had an agent, you know, I'd finished my first book and I didn't do it right away because I still kind of felt like I wanted to go the traditional route. And then more and more stories were coming out of people finding, you know, not just massive monetary success, but also just like finding readers um, and really connecting with people. And, you know, that was, I was kind of following all that, but I was also, um, you know, working and kind of writing books and not paying that much attention to it. And then there kind of came a point I was talking to my husband about it and he was like, you should just do it. Like, what are you waiting for? Um, and I talked to my brother about it and he said, just do it. Like, just, just do it. So I did, I formatted a book and I made my own cover and I put up unleashed on Amazon and I set it at 99 cents and I sold two books that day. And I just thought, Oh my God. I said that. I said, who are these people? How is this happening? <laughs> <laughs> Ring them up and find yeah. them. So then I, I spent a lot of time on Kindle boards, um, you know, reading about kind of what people were doing to reach people and, and, and kind of learning about the business side. And, um, you know, it was, it was a while before I started to take it seriously. The book was up there for a long time and I was working on the follow-ups and, um, and my husband had opened a, uh, We'd opened a studio and gallery for his glass blowing. And so I was helping him with that, running that. And so I was, you know, I was busy and, but I was also becoming a businesswoman, um, you know, through running that gallery and learning so much and realizing how much I actually loved being a businesswoman. Um, and the challenges there were fascinating to me. And it was also, you know, you're as an entrepreneur, your work is never going to be done either. It's like writing in that way. Um, and you're never going to master it. You're never, it's sure. So what did you love about business? Well, I love numbers. They're so concrete. 
Um, I love marketing because there's just so many different angles to look at it um, and experimenting um, and seeing what works, what doesn't, what works today and then doesn't work tomorrow is fascinating mm -hmm. to me. Um, you know, it's, it just all is a very fascinating world to me. And, and the glass blowing studio, obviously you're talking about, you know, objects, you're talking about permanent things, whereas eBooks, you're talking about files that you write it once and then it just gets sold over and over and over again. And there's no more cost to it. So at working as someone who was selling these actual products that had to, each one had to be made. Mm -hmm. I could just see so clearly, oh, this business model is not as good as making something once and selling it forever. Yeah. Um, and so um, I talked to my husband about it and he, you know, we sat down and we talked about the business and he totally agreed that in terms of just the model of a business, if you kind of just look at it that way, that selling stuff online um, makes more sense just black and white, but especially for us because we're such perpetual travelers. And when we set up that business, we couldn't travel the way we had before. And we just didn't like that. We felt too tied in one place. And so basically we shifted our entire life so that we could start traveling again. And I started writing full time and putting out books quicker and basically took everything I'd learned um, in the studio and gallery and put it into the books. And so I was a step ahead of a lot of authors because I had been a businesswoman. Um, right. And it really, it was, it was very useful background. And so I understood marketing. I understood how to work with customers. Um, I understood the power of email marketing because that's, we'd, um, we'd had a big email list for our gallery and that's, you know, we'd sold a lot of stuff by bringing people into the store by doing different promos that we put out through email. And so being able to do promos where you send out an email and it's just, just a click to buy it instead of having to actually show up in my shop, isn't that easier? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, back then in kind of 20, end of 2012, beginning of 2013, um, you could still do a free run on Amazon, give away 15,000 books and then sell, you know, a thousand books from that. Um, so that's, you know, for people not, not familiar with that well, this is say you have a series of books and the first one's free and then people read that and then they go on to read the, the others. Is but that even so the way Amazon used to run their algorithms is that when you gave away a free book, in terms of the rankings, it counted as about a quarter sale. And so if mm -hmm. you gave away 15,000 books, you would be in the free charts in, you know, the top 50 or whatever, 15,000 yeah. books could get you higher than that then. But, you know, in the, and then when you went back to paid, you were in the top 500 or top 1000. So you were suddenly showing up in all these charts and getting all this visibility. So, buyers would buy your book. It's, you know, it was free yesterday. They don't know that it's two ninety nine today and in the top 1000. And so they yeah. would just buy it. And so you didn't even need to have follow up books. <laughs> you could just sell that well, one book that you'd given away the day before. Those were the good old, day, old days. Yes. Um, and so that, you know, now that happens to a degree, but it's not, um, it's not nearly the same. And the first time I had a big free run, um, was when I was like, Oh wow, this is, this is serious there there's there's a living to be made here um and then you know i and then bookbub came out right around then and i was one of their early advertisers i mean i booked with them when they were like 3 months in 4 months in maybe and they would book you every 3 months then now they won't do they'll only book the same book every 6 months 
Um, and so I just started putting out books and running them as freebies and it just built. So again, for people outside of the world, BookBub is a, an email marketing yes, book, service, isn't it? You can... BookBub is an email that people get in their inbox that has free and discounted books. And it's the biggest player um, in that world. Yeah. There's... Um, there's, there's nothing like, you know, I'll put a free book in BookBub and give away 60,000 copies in five days. So, and, oh, and the people who, yeah. And, and the thing is that one of the things that us kind of early indie authors were able to do is the people who tested us, the people who were paying 99 cents for a book, two ninety nine for a book, these were people who were desperate for books. And they are people who read a book a day. And so they're on a budget and they're just ferocious. And so... A lot of, you know, the readers I picked up five years ago when I started are still my readers today and have brought more readers in are people who read a book a day. You know, they're just serious readers. And indie authors were able to take a lot of those readers from traditional publishers because we were charging 99 cents, $2.99, $4.99 at the top back then. And traditional publishers were still trying to get the same price as a paperback, sometimes even more for an ebook. But those biggest readers, of course, like me, we all went to the Kindle because we didn't want to carry around suitcases of books anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it like that moment, you know, when you had that free run and you realized, wow, this is, this is serious. It could be a living. It was um, exhilarating. It was so, I was so happy. Um, my brother was visiting. At that point, Sean and I, so we'd, we'd sold kind of everything we owned um, and moved onto a boat, um, which had always been a dream of Sean's. And... I had been kind of, oh, whatever. And then, so I said to him, let's, let's rent a, a houseboat for a month in January, which was my test. I was like, if we like it in January, then we'll like it, thinking I wasn't going <laughs> to like it. And, th and that he would learn his lesson that he wanted to live on a boat. And three days later, I was like, we're buying a boat. This is all my dreams come true. I had no idea. <laughs> and so we were on the boat we were living on, um, on the Hudson River. And my brother was visiting and, um, he actually took a picture of me and I was, I'm on the bottom deck kind of yelling up to him and Sean about it. And I have this giant grin on my face. I'm just like, <laughs> you know, just like so excited that this is possible. Um, and basically kind of that the, the future I dreamed of where I was going to be able to write full time was kind of at hand much sooner than I'd ever expected it to be. And you're on a boat at this point. So this mm -hmm. is another really intriguing thing about your story is the fact that you're not, you're not just sat there at home, you know, the stereotypical of the idea of the, of the writer sitting at home all day while the world, you know, busies itself around her. You're out, you're out traveling and having adventures in the middle of all of this. So how, how did you balance the, the writing and the traveling and the business? Well, you know, uh, Sean and I are both big travelers and, um, I've always loved traveling. It's, I would say traveling is as important to me as writing. Um, and one of the reasons, one of the things that drew me to writing was, well, all I need for this career is me, a laptop and a pair of headphones and I can do it anywhere. And so that's what I've done. Um, I've written on trains in India. I've written, um, you know, dictated while walking through national parks. I just, I like being on the road and I find it very inspiring. And so, you know, before we had kids, we lived on the boat and we would live on the boat for kind of the summer in the New York area. And then in the winters, we would go to a different place. So we went to India one year and that's where I wrote the fourth book in my series, Strings of Glass. And then when we went to Costa Rica, I wrote the book, um, Inviting Fire. And so basically 
that lets me kind of really create the places in these books um, that people feel like they're there. Um, and it's important to me to get those details right um, and gives me a great excuse to go and live in exotic places and enjoy that. So you're actually in that location as you're writing about it? Yeah, a lot of the time. I mean, not like Sydney Ryan ends up in Syria. I did not go there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There are definitely places I have not been to that are in the books, but the majority of them I have been to. Um, and YouTube is great for everything else. And I guess one question I'm going to get from listeners is, but well, if I was on holiday, then I would, I would find it hard to sit down and and write every day. How was that? Would how did you? Was it a, the distraction of temptation? Well, it's not. I think it's important to think. I didn't think of it as being on holiday. This was just mm-hmm. my life I was living. Um, yeah. So you know, I was in India for four months. It's not like I was there for a week. Um, I was in Costa Rica for four months. I wasn't there for a short period of time. And so, um, you know, Sean and I love to travel, but we don't like to travel fast. We like to go slow. Um, and so each of these places, I'd kind of figure out how to work there. Um, you know, we later ended up moving on to an Airstream once I had my daughter. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where me and my laptop and headphones aren't going to cut it because a kid is not going to let you just sit there with your headphones on like other passengers on the train. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, so I started dictating. So I would basically get up in the morning, um, you know, get my recorder and walk out the front door and just walk wherever we were and dictating my stories, Um, which is a, you know, you have to kind of change your brain to, to dictate rather than type. But that's, it's always been very important to me to write and to travel. And so I just make the two work together. Um, and I, and because traveling is so inspiring to me, it's not hard. It gets my brain buzzing. And I actually find it harder to write when I've been in the same place for too long. Okay. And then as the catalog grew, as mm-hmm. your experience as a writer grew, as obviously as, as the business grew, uh, you know, how have things, and, and the family's grown as well. Mm-hmm. How have, how have mm-hmm. things changed and evolved for you? Well, one one big difference is that um, I have a woman who works for me or with me, I should say, Jamie, and she is my business manager at this point. And and basically, what happened is after I had my daughter, I realized how much I had been working. I I hadn't quite grasped how much time I spent working prior to that because um, I I did my writing and then I which is always kind of my my first thing that I, I you know eat the frog get the writing out of the way. Um, and, and also that it's, it's the most fun part. So do it first. And if too much of the world comes into my brain, it it becomes more difficult to kick it all out. Um, and so, you know, I would do that and then I would do my marketing and stuff. And then Sean and I would have dinner. And then after dinner, I would work for another few hours and I hadn't realized I was doing that. You know, we would be watching a movie or something or, and I would just be on my computer making newsletters, doing social media posts, creating graphics. And basically, once my daughter was born, that time disappeared. Um, you know, post-dinner was was sleep time for me. Or if I wasn't sleeping, I certainly wasn't using my brain um, because I was brain dead. And so it, I, I kind of was like, okay, I need to get some help here. Um, and that, that's when you and I started working together because I needed to learn how to become... Um, how to get my business out of my head and into the hands of somebody else um, while still having control over it. Um, and so that is something that now I'd say I'm very good at. And Jamie 
does all of the emails, all the social media posts. She's a great sounding board. So we we talk once a week and we talk strategy and we talk about, you know, what's happening tomorrow, next week, a month from now, six months from now, five years from now. You know, she's um, really a partner for me. She's, you know, someone who who cares about my business as well. And, and we've become good friends. And so I say that's the biggest change in the business is that a lot of that smaller stuff that is so time consuming, like graphic creation, emails, um, is yeah. someone else does those actual tasks for me now. Um, and also having someone to talk to about this business because it is so niche, um, who understands the business, you know, as well as I do is, uh, is another great thing that she provides for me. And that is something I didn't have when I started. Um, but you know, when I started, it was much more wild West. Things have settled to a degree where there are kind of proven strategies that work now. Um, whereas, you know, when I started, it was, everyone was just like, what is happening? <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. 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 Jumping um, and up it's, and down on boats. Yeah. And it's, it's not that easy anymore. Um, and so, you know, so that's kind of the biggest shift in my business is I've gotten, um, some great help. And, um, and I think, and my writing has shifted too. I'm a much better writer. Um, I, and my first drafts are so much better. Um, I used to just kind of go start a book and just go to the end full steam. Don't look back or you'll get stopped. Um, and then fix it later. And now I don't worry about getting stopped. If I want to write a book, the book's going to get written. I'm not going to get bogged down and worries about my skills or will anyone like it or will anyone care? Cause I have readers who want to read my work and I know that. So that confidence, um, allows me to do kind of slower, more methodical first drafts. I still can't outline to save my life, but I really don't need to at this point because I just start writing. I go slowly, I cycle back and the story just appears. Um, and it's really tight and it's, um, it's really good kind of from the get-go, um, which is different than how it's been, how, how it was when I started writing. I mean, it took me five years to write my first book, Unleashed. And now I average, the average book takes me three to four months. Wow. That's quite a step change. Yeah. And this book that I'm working on now, if I continue on the schedule I'm on, then it'll be done in about six weeks. It'll be six weeks of writing. Okay. And, and this is a... I think this is a really important transition that a lot of creatives go through as their career matures because you know when we start off we're doing everything and we're mm -hmm. we're trying yeah. lots of things and we we bootstrap and we we do lots mm -hmm. of things that aren't really in our you know zone of expertise but right. time and success and and learning mm -hmm. often get you to the point where you realize how valuable your time is and that you know time away from writing and the things that you do best mm -hmm are really, you know, A, they're less fulfilling, but also you're, you're eroding some of the potential value to your business or your career. Right. Um, and you've, you use the word strategy when you talk about your conversations with Jamie. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of the big strategic priorities that allow you to, you know, that you use as your kind of guiding light at this point in your career? Well, I think, you know, we basically have a two-pronged approach. We are trying to bring in new readers and we're trying to keep the readers we have happy. Um, so, you know, there's the people who are on my email list. You know, I have about 20,000 people on my email list 
And a lot of those people have read all my books and are waiting for the next one. And a lot of those people haven't actually even read any of my books. <laughs> right. They just ended up my email list. They entered a contest or something. So there's, you know, getting those people who kind of, we've got the hook, but they haven't bitten yet. We're trying to get them to bite. We've got the people who have read all the books and are my cheerleaders and we want to keep them happy and show gratitude and appreciation for their support. And then we have people who have never even heard of me who we want to kind of bring into the fold. And so, you know, who we think will, you know, kind of people who are going to like my kind of books. We want to let them know that this book exists. Um, and so, you know, there's different strategies for, for those three things. Um, and kind of, you know, there's advertising to try and bring in new people. So kind of going after cold audiences. And then there's retargeting those people to try and convince them to actually start reading the books, um, doing giveaways to kind of get people interested, and then also doing giveaways to reward people who have read my work. Um, so a lot of the tactics overlap, but the strategies are, you know, enticing um, versus kind of thanking. So, you know, I, once I've enticed someone to read the book and they take that chance on me, I'm very grateful for that. That's you know, that makes me feel great. I really appreciate that someone is taking time to read my work. That's huge. Any artist, I think any creative uh, feels a lot of gratitude when a person is interested in their work that they're creating from their brain. You know? <laughs> and so, sure. so I think that one of the things that we try and do is once I have those readers, we want to keep them around and really express how much they mean to me. Um, and how much I appreciate that they're into this, that we're into the same stuff. Like, oh, you guys are into this too? Awesome. Okay. And if obviously there's plenty more to come from you, you're going to be doing this a long mm -hmm. time as, as we've established. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you look back on your career so far, if there's somebody listening to this who's thinking, well, I would like a bit of that. I would like that kind of freedom and an artistic um, expression and um, business success. And maybe this person, it could be a, a writer or it could be a, another kind of creative. What are some of the big lessons you would want to share with them? Well, I think there's, that's, there's the practical and then there's the kind of mindset. So the mindset is nothing's going to stop me no matter what. Right. Um, this is what I want. And it's not a question of if, it's a question of how and when. Um, so I think that's the first thing. If you want to have this kind of uh, creative expression, you have to keep creating no matter what is happening. Um, and if you want to have this kind of business success, you have to keep trying different strategies and tactics until you land on the one that works for selling your work. Um, and in terms of the, the practical you know, this is specifically for writers, but I would say learn to dictate early because your <laughs> hands and back will thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and it is, it is, you know, now I can interchange between the two. So, you know, last week stuff was going on that basically it made sense that I was out dictating a lot. Um, and then, you know, editing those, my transcriptions and this week I've been typing all week. So it really, because I've got two kids and, you know, the, the, just the way any week goes to be able to go back and forth between those two is, is a skill that's really useful for a writer specifically. Um, but for any creative, you know, kind of doing that same thing, no matter what you do, but having to having ways to create your art, no matter what else is going on 
is a really good skill set to build that just I'm not going to let anything stop me. This is getting done. Yeah, I mean, I doesn't well, firstly, I would second the dictation thing, even if people people who aren't primarily writers, because I mean, I discovered dictation Mm -hmm. about 10 years ago, I had really bad RSI and couldn't touch a keyboard for six months. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of inconvenient Mm -hmm. when you're running a, a web based business. And I discovered Dragon Naturally Speaking at that time, right, and it was yeah. it was a huge relief. And I still use I can't use Dragon now because I've got a Mac, but I still use Dictation, and it's very freeing because mm. I can walk about the office mm-hmm. and talk yeah. and get thoughts out in the way yeah. in a much easier way for that initial draft. But the bigger point I think is mm-hmm. what you said just before that, though the mindset of I am going to make this happen. Nothing mm-hmm. is going to stop me because. So many creatives I come across, there's, mm-hmm. it's almost as, it, as long as you're thinking, well, can I do this? Will I do this? Is it possible? You're waiting for permission. Whereas one thing I've noticed very, very right. clearly from talking to you is that you are going to figure this out. That's your attitude. You know, whenever there's a problem, whenever there's an obstacle, a bit like Sydney Rye herself, yeah. um, you're you don't kill people. No. <laughs> Except <laughs> I don't difference. I don't kill people. It's a big difference between us. <laughs> but you know, there's that resourcefulness <laughs> and that sense of um embracing the adventure, I guess, is is something I very much pick up from you in in person and in your writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think if you can do that, if you can look at the thing that's trying to stop you, not as something that's trying to stop you, but as a new challenge to overcome. I mean, when you're traveling, you know, when you miss the train, when something goes wrong. And it turns out just insane. That's the story you tell all your friends. You don't tell them about, you know, the beautiful museum you went to and all the art you saw that might have been really moving and beautiful, but doesn't make a great story. Um, And so if you can kind of look at whatever is trying to stop your creative work as that missing the train, then that's going to give you a better place to work from. And like, just because you miss the train doesn't mean you're not going to go on the trip now, right? Like, you're not going to be like, I guess I'll just live in Shanghai. You're going to get the next train. So I think if you kind of go with that as like, okay, I didn't get my words this morning because, you know, my daughter was sick and I had to take care of her, but that doesn't mean I'm not getting my words today or I'm going to write double tomorrow. Um, You know, there's just, you can't, you can't just sit in the train station forever. Okay. I think this is a good point, Emily, for you to share your creative challenge Mm -hmm. to our listener. So For anyone who's new to the show, this is the point where I invite my guests to set you, the listener, a creative challenge, which is something that you can do or at least get started on within seven days of listening to this interview. And it's going to stretch you creatively and probably as a a human being as well. So, Emily, what's your creative challenge? So I think that something that would be really fun and, um, and help with kind of when stuff comes up is sit down and write down every excuse that comes up for why you can't get something done. So in order to create, I need space, I need silence, I need a laptop and headphones. I need, you know, what are even the most basic things that you think you need and write them all down and then go through each one and come up with a plan B. So you don't have your Mm -hmm. headphones and your laptop, I'm going to dictate. You know, I don't have silence, I'm going to grab my headphones. You know, whatever it is. But that way you have all the things you think you need. And then throughout the seven days, as things show up and you're like, oh, that's something I should probably add to my list, add it to the list and come up with a plan B. Because otherwise in the moment it can be, oh, well, I can't 
I can't write, I can't paint, I can't create today because X happened. Right. And you just, and you can just end up getting mad and frustrated <laughs> and being angry and frustrated is not like an awesome You'd place to create You'd be like me on, <laughs> on Monday when we had a power cut in Bristol for an hour and I was like, what's going on? You know, I was just about to, to get going and then I had to, well, I was mad for five minutes and then I dusted off this thing called pen and paper. And um, I guess that was my plan B for the day. But uh, (laughs) I think this is a really good one, Emily, because otherwise it's so easy. If you don't have that mindset of I'm going to do this, then you're easily knocked off course by the printer running out of ink or or the laptop battery going or or whatever it may be. So, okay, so identify those excuses ahead of time Mm -hmm. and have a plan B ready. Mm -hmm. So there will be no excuse when you're, you're tested for real. Yeah. And I think that also um, having an idea of forgiveness, though, in the back of your mind is important as well. Because I definitely, when I was younger, if I didn't get my words done, I would really tear myself a new one. (laughs) And I don't, and that's not helpful. So if everything does stop you, your plan B even gets stymied. Don't think, oh, well, I'm, you know, that's it. I'm a loser. I hate myself. Um, You know, forgive yourself for that stumble be prepared to forgive yourself for the stumbles and just keep and say okay i need to add to my list i need better plan b's yeah no sackcloth and ashes yeah i think some one thing i sometimes do if if something you know comes up and i do have to lose you know my morning's writing say something's up with the children or or whatever Mm -hmm. i always look for an opportunity to pay myself back think about it like that that Mm -hmm. okay I, i can find another time to to do it rather than beat myself up. So, okay, Emily, that's a great challenge. And, uh, you know, I'm really glad we could do this conversation because I've been inspired by talking to you for, for some time now. And I'm really delighted we could very nice. share the story, uh, some of the stories with my listeners. Um, so for those who are listening to this thinking, I don't really want to read about that heroine who's going kicking the patriarchy's ass. <laughs> 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 Where should they go? Where can people find more about you and your books? Uh, my website is emilykimmelman.com. Um, and if you Google Sydney Rye, Sydney Rye. It's, if you Google Emily Kimmelman or Sydney Rye, I'm the only thing that comes up. Okay. Um, and it's Kimmelman with one M. Great. And we will obviously put the links in the show notes as usual. Uh, 21stCenturyCreative.fm. You'll find all the show notes to all the episodes, including this one. So. Emily, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you. And, um, it's always great to talk with you. Maybe you can come back in your 90s and we will continue <laughs> the conversation and see how, you, how, how things have changed then. Definitely. <laughs> you have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show, as well as all the backlist episodes of the podcast, at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like my help applying the ideas in the show to your own situation, you're welcome to join us in the 21st Century Creative Patreon group at patreon.com slash the 21st Century Creative. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help 
as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. And I'll be in touch with you as soon as I've reviewed your answers. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.